0: Hello and welcome to J.H.E. Ministries Bible Study, where we study God's Word. As always, I'm Jeffrey, ordained minister and chaplain at J.H.E. Ministries, and I'm glad you joined us today. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to chapter 12, verse 1 of the book of Luke. Let's get into it. Last time we finished chapter 11, as Jesus rebuked the Pharisees with their corrupt ways. So now let's begin to unpack chapter 12. Now, chapter 12, we're going to see teaching and healing on the way to Jerusalem, and teachings on times of crisis and also of judgment. We're going to see some warnings, and we're also going to see some encouragements. The crisis in Jesus' relationship with the teachers of the law at the end of chapter 11 gives rise to a series of strong statements about the eternal issues involved. Jesus' audience must choose sides. He gives promises and he gives warnings that's appropriate to each hearer's circumstance. And Jesus dealt a good deal with our motives. And that is that qualify within us that makes us what we do and guides our conduct. To him, what motivates us is who and what we are. Our one grand motive should be the desire for God's approval and the fear of God's disapproval. The religious people of Jesus' day performed many of the religious practices for the sake of people's approval. It is still a part of our nature with which we have a constant struggle. When we are with irreligious people, we want to be considered religious or spiritual, and this desire sometimes leads us to pretend to be more spiritual than we really are, and that is hypocrisy. The desire for people's approval within proper bounds is legitimate and laudable. But the most basic fact of existence is God. The one thing that really matters is our relationship to him. Now let us always keep in mind and let us be mindful of how our thoughts and motives and deeds stack up in his sight. And many of the things that we will see in this chapter are contained in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus had favorite sayings. He repeated again and again, and we'll see those. And one of them was about God's unfailing care for and the guidance of his people. And also, as we take a look at chapter 12, I want you to note especially Jesus' warnings about Satan, who has the power to deceive us and ultimately leads us into an eternal existence in hell. We must realize that our decision to either follow Christ or to not follow Christ is going to have eternal consequences. So turn with me to the scriptures, to verse 1. And let's begin with the section, Beware of Hypocrisy. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Now let's stop there and let's visit about the first three verses here. <clears throat> in verse 1, an innumerable multitude had gathered together while Jesus was condemning the Pharisees and the lawyers. And again, Luke notes the size of the crowds, and he size, extremely large size of this one in particular. A dispute or a debate will generally attract a throng, but this crowd was also drawn, no doubt, by Jesus' fearless denunciation of these hypocritical religious leaders. Although an uncomprom- uh, uncompromising attitude towards sin is not always popular, yet it does commend itself to the heart of man as being righteous. Truth is always self-verifying. In turn to his disciples, Jesus warned, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He explained that leaven is a symbol or a picture of hypocrisy. A hypocrite is one who wears a mask, who, one who's... Outward appearance is utterly different from what he is inwardly. The Pharisees posed as paragons of virtue, but actually they were masters of masquerade. And in verses 2 and 3, their day of exposure would come. All that they had covered up would be revealed, and all that they had done in the dark would be dragged out into the light. And just as inevitable as the hypocrisy is the triumph of truth, Up to then, the message proclaimed by the disciples had been spoken in relative obscurity and to limited audiences. But following the rejection of the Messiah by Israel, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the disciples would go forth fearlessly in the name of the Lord Jesus and proclaim the good news far and wide. Then it would be proclaimed on the housetops, comparatively speaking. Now those whose voice cannot now find a hearing, save with limited and obscure circles, shall become the teacher's world. And Jesus, Jesus addresses the disciples first. The crowds received his words later. And the key word hypocrisy was triggered by the charges that we saw in chapter 11. And Jesus compares the insidious way this attitude can influence others to the action of yeast. His next words about concealment and disclosure seem at first to be a warning that what hypocrites try to cover up will be revealed. <clears throat> and we have a positive threat here. verse three is much like Matthew chapter 10 verses 26 and 27 where the disciples are encouraged not to be afraid but to declare publicly what they have heard privately from Jesus. Now let's take a look at how Jesus teaches the fear of God. So turn back with me to our scriptures, to verse 4. And I'm going to read the next three verses. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill and after that have no more that they can do. But I will fear. fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. In verses 4 and 5, with the encouraging and warm-hearted words, My friends, Jesus warns his disciples not to be ashamed of this personal friendship, under any trials. This is an expression of confidence, one that is antithetical to the hostility of the Pharisees. The worldwide proclamation of the Christian message would bring persecution and death to the loyal disciples. But there was a limit to what men like the Pharisees could do. Physical death was that limit. This they should not fear. God would visit their persecutors with a far worse punishment, namely eternal death in hell. And so the disciples would fear God rather than to fear man. Jesus not guarantee protection from death, but affirms that, number one, God alone controls our final destiny. And people should fear him rather than those who can merely inflict physical death. And number two, God is intimately aware of all that befalls us. And hell mentioned only here in Luke is clearly a place of torment. And now we see in verses six to seven, to emphasize God's protective interest in his disciples, the Lord mentions the Father here for sinners. Now in the book of Matthew chapter 10 verse 29, we read that two sparrows are sold For a copper coin and here we learned that five sparrows are sold for two copper coins in other words an extra sparrow is thrown in free when four are purchased and yet not even this odd sparrow with no commercial value is forgotten in the sight of god if god cares for that odd sparrow how much more does he watch over those who go forth with the gospel of his son he numbers the very hairs of their head and sparrows and hares are so significant that this kind of argument from lesser to greater points up the supreme worth of the disciple, the disciples in God's eyes. And so now we will see the confession, the, confe- uh, the to confess Christ before men. So again, let's turn back to our scriptures with verse 8. And it says, also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men... Him, the Son of Man, also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and the magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The Savior told the disciples that whoever confesses Him now, here in verses eight and nine, will be confessed by Him before the angels of God. Here He is speaking of all believers. To confess Him is to receive Him only Lord. And Jesus underscores the seriousness of the issues by referring to the ultimate issue, whether or not one sides with Him. The cruciality of the present situation calls. For its restatement, Jesus's third-person reference to the Son of Man is consistent with his guarded use of tides. Not until his trial does he publicly combine the terms Son of Man, Son of God, and Messiah in an eschatological context. Acknowledge and disown are opposites. The reference, apparently, to a future scene when the Lord Jesus having achieved victory and honor, acknowledges those who have supported him and disowns those who repudiated him during the present age. He does this publicly before God the Father and all the assembled. Those who deny him before men will be denied before the angels of God. The primary reference here seems to be the Pharisees. But, of course, the verse includes all who refuse Christ and are ashamed to acknowledge Him. In that day, He will say, I never knew you. Then, we have next, the Savior explains to the disciples that there is a difference between criticism of Him and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Jesus' final warning relates to the unpardonable sin in Luke, it occupies a climatic place in the continued buildup of hostility between Jesus and the teachers of the law. It is difficult, however, to determine its meaning without the contextual explanations that we have in Matthew chapter 12, verses 25 to 36, and also in Mark chapter 3, verses 23 to 25. just make it clear that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the attribution of the works of Jesus to the very prince of demons. Now, according to Luke, therefore, if dishonoring the Son of Man is such a serious matter, then total rejection of God by insinuating that his Holy Spirit is evil is so much worse. Now, one may reject Christ and later, by God's grace, accept him, but there is no remedy for absolute and complete denial of the one Holy God, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is what blaspheme seems to mean here. Now those who speak against the Son of Man can be forgiven if they repent and believe. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an unpardonable sin. This is the sin of which the Pharisees were guilty. And what is sin? It it is the sin of attributing the miracles of the Lord Jesus to the devil. It is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because... Jesus performed all his miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it was in effect saying that the Holy Spirit of God is the devil, and there is no forgiveness for this sin in the age to come. This sin cannot be committed by a true believer, though some are tortured by fears that they have committed it by backsliding. Backsliding is not the unpardonable sin. A backslider can be restored to fellowship with the Lord. The very fact that a person is concerned is evidence that he has not committed this unpardonable sin. And neither is rejection of Christ by an unbeliever the unforgivable sin. A person may spurn the Savior repeatedly, yet he may later turn to the Lord and be converted. Of course, if he dies in unbelief, he can no longer be sinned and in fact does become unpardonable. But the sin which our Lord described as unpardonable is the sin which the Pharisees committed by saying that Jesus performed his miracles by the power of Beelzebub, who is the prince of demons. Now, in verses 11 to 12, to close up this section, the foregoing series of warnings and encouragements concludes with this striking contrast to the last thing against the Holy Spirit. Far from committing that sin of speaking against him, believing that the Spirit speaks through them. The circumstance in which the Spirit speaks through believers is not preaching, but persecution. In that context, preparation of an adequate defense is hardly possible. It is inevitable that the disciples would be brought before governmental authorities for trial. And the Lord Jesus told them that it was unnecessary for them to rehearse in advance what they should say. The Holy Spirit would put the proper words in their mouths whenever it was necessary. Now this does not mean that servants of the Lord should not spend time in prayer before preaching the gospel or teaching the word of God. And it should not be used as an excuse for laziness. However, it is a definite promise from the Lord that those who are placed on trial for the witness for Christ will be given spatial help from the Holy Spirit. And it is a general promise to all of God's people that if they walk in the Spirit, they will be given the suitable words to speak in the crisis moments of life. And with that, we are out of time. So I'm going to stop there. Next time, we will talk about the purple of... So until next time, God bless you, and keep living Christian strong.